1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Economic and Business History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Filippo De and I'm one of the hosts of the channel. I'm here today with Dr. Ryan Smith, author of The Real Oil Shock How Oil Transformed Money, Debt, and Finance, published by Paul Macmillan in 2022. Welcome to the show, Ryan
0: thank you for having me on.
1: This book deals with the consequences of this watershed moment in the history of the 20th century. The real oil shock examines the evolution of global finance in the 1970s, the petrodollar cycle, and the innovations that it spurred. But before we talk about the book, could you tell us something about yourself and how you became interested in finance and in the oil
0: shock? sure uh so i completed my phd in economic and social history in june of 2022 uh, from the university of glasgow and studied under uh professor duncan ross uh jeffrey fear and emmanuel uh, morland jewel um and what got me started in looking at this was reading a lot like why the oil shocks in particular was partly because of stuff from my master's research uh before starting on my phd where a lot of what i was getting into was around the modern economic history of the middle east and how petrostates form and function and what are like some of the you know particular quirks they have and it was during These studies, as well as reading just general economic history around the rise of our current neoliberal moment that had me asking the question of if there's a connection between these two broader phenomena. Because a lot of the literature that's out there either talks a lot about things like the Nixon shock and Bretton Woods as some of the key turning points for what changed the global market and global environment whereas others, like, say, Naomi Klein, focus a lot more on policy and political changes. And it seemed like the oil shock was just sort of there, but not really talked about within that context. Uh, Now, there are certainly, like, other researchers, um, like uh, Mahmoud uh, El-Gamal and Amy Myers-Jaffa, who wrote an excellent book on the role of oil in the development of finance called oil dollars, debt and finance, um, the curse of black gold. And that one gave like a bit more grounding to what it was. I was thinking, but it still sort of didn't quite bridge that gap. And it seemed like there was something missing there because it was one of the big wealth redistributions on a global scale. Um, certainly one of the biggest of the 20th century. Um, since the end of the Second World War. So it seems like, you know, that's kind of important um, to, and why it's not in there sort of was perplexing to me. So I started looking more into that for my PhD and specifically at what happened there in the world of finance, of how is all of this oil money that is basically completely liquid deposits coming out of the Persian Gulf, changing the way that finance is doing business. And was this significant for these processes of financialization, of a broader shift in how we talk about economic policy away from the public sector to the private sector, and all the other things that have happened since then. The main sources for my research were bank archives like the Bank of Scotland, the hong kong shanghai banking corporation and their subsidiaries and national westminster bank and barclays bank as well as non-governmental organizations like the organization for petroleum exporting countries research library and the bank for international settlements which was also supplemented by u.s state department cables procured from the wikileaks archive period newspaper reporting, trade journals, and and other similar primary sources, along with data and statistics gathered from the IMF, the World Bank, and British Petroleum.
1: If I may, the title is a little provocative. The real oil shock. Could you elaborate on that?
0: Well, what my thinking is behind that is... Everyone knows about the oil shocks of what they did for inflation and how they uh, transformed economics on the ground in the time when they happened. But what I'm getting at with the title here is that the real shock was the lasting sea change that this brought on for finance. And without that, you wouldn't have a lot of the economic changes we've seen since like a lot of, for example, the developments of the 1980s of things like corporate consolidation and leverage buyouts or like, say, the increasing volatility of the stock markets and the rise of finance as a increasingly globalized and critical component of the health of the economy uh so much of that is stuff that traces back to this time period and as much as the shocks themselves were major events in and of themselves and are absolutely worth getting into um in their own right i think that the bigger shock was what this did to finance and the way that finance and money works and that's something that is still lingering with us today
1: So, before recalling the main events of 1973, let's talk about the context. What
0: was finance like before the oil shock? So, finance before the oil shock was, at the international as well as national levels, a much more closely regulated field than it would become in the subsequent decades, Part of this was at the national level, uh, different governments like the United States, um, uh, the United Kingdom throughout much of Europe and other parts of the industrialized world had seen the consequences of the Great Depression and particularly the role that financial speculation and uh, relatively unregulated international financial flows, which were all thanks to things like paying for war reparations and lots of other stuff. Had destabilized economics on a global scale, and you saw things like, for example, Glass-Steagall in the United States, which built a wall between investment banking and commercial banking, as one of as one example of many of different measures that were taken by different national governments to make sure that never happened again. You then had the Negotiations of Bretton Woods, which followed the end of the Second World War and brought on, well, you know, began, we're finished in 1944, implemented following the war, um, which ushered in a new era for finance where you had. Uh, the value of gold, well, the value of gold pegged to the U.S. dollar at $35 per ounce. And this was important because everyone else was expected to buy gold using U.S. dollars from the United States. And this was, of course, an artifact of the war that the United States had become the largest holder of debt, as well as gold on the global scale. And it was also the only major industrialized power that hadn't been consumed in the conflict. So the U.S. was in a position to basically dictate economic terms, and nobody was really in any position to argue at that time. Um and because of this, as well as just a broad consensus between economic policymakers in the different industrialized powers, there was more of a like a greater degree of cooperation between regulatory authorities on like keeping banking in check in different ways, um, both at the national level as well as the international level. Um, and you saw things like, for example, the gold pool that existed in the 1960s as sort of a backstop for the different financial systems that existed in the industrialized global North and, other similar measures that had developed like for example the imf and the world bank were first established to help harmonize this system um and this is years away from when they become like this chief enforcers of like debt regimes and austerity programs that are often associated with the imf beginning in the 1980s to the present day um so this was a very different world. Um, and also part of that was banking itself was in terms of like the internal culture of finance seen as a very, you know, a very conservative and very risk averse set of institutions, like a common expression, um, in american banking at the time for example was that your work day was nine to five to nine you got in at the office at nine you left at five and then you were at the ninth hole on the golf course um it was i wouldn't quite go so far to say boring but it was a fairly safe career it was a like a set of institutions that were expected not to take big risks or do anything um, dangerous. You also had a much greater degree of local and regional banks that were mostly focused on local and regional concerns, like the levels of consolidation that exist today, where for example, you can open a Barclays account. Oh, actually you could open a Barclays account on multiple continents then, but you could do But the way that, you know, any individual could, like, say, walk into a Barclays branch in San Francisco and open up a savings account that is good throughout, like, say, the European Union, Latin America, and large chunks of East Asia, um, is a thing that would not have been as much available. Like, you could if, you know, you were someone who was very well connected in finance at the time, but not in the way that it's just sort of casually available now. Um, And... All kinds of other just very big structural differences If it was a much more diversified market there were a lot more smaller scale local actors and those big players like you know to go back to barclays tended to be much more focused in very specific avenues of international finance and business than you know the incredibly diversified you know massive like compared to that period you could almost call them conglomerates that dominate finance now where now you can have somebody like walk into a shop and drop like a jp morgan chase credit card to pay for their coffee which you know, that wouldn't have happened in this period not just because credit cards weren't a thing but just because that's not the business that jp morgan or chase did back then and then there's the nixon shock so the Nixon shock is often seen as sort of the critical catalyst for bringing about the neoliberal period. And I agree that it's absolutely critical. The place where I disagree somewhat is that I see it more as a necessary catalyst for what's going to come of that the Nixon shock opens the door and then the oil shocks are what really provide the momentum and the energy as well as just the raw capital to make this transformation possible. Um, The Nixon shock was famously when Richard Nixon, as many conspiracy wags will say, took the United States off the gold standard. Um, But it's a bit more, uh, a bit messier than that. Um, The, What happened prior to this was again, we go back to the Bretton Woods agreements where the United States was able to dictate terms and set a fixed price for buying gold from the United States. And the US holding massive gold reserves was still the foundation of the value of the US dollar, even though everyone else still needed dollars for doing business. And this had come to shape international commerce in a big way that if you really wanted to play on the global scale, you needed dollars especially because you need dollars to buy gold, but also because everybody had dollars and sort of accepted them. Um, Now, the different governments that were involved in Bretton Woods still wanted to reestablish their own gold stocks and gold reserves for reasons that within the time made sense. They wanted to establish their own firm footing for their currencies and have something that would get them a bit more freedom of action away from American policymakers and not have their economies subject to American monetary policy. So over the course of the 1960s, particularly as uh, Western Europe and Japan are reindustrialized and begin really competing with American industry in a big way, as well as seeing things like, say, import substitution in Latin America, which begins pushing uh, that part of the world towards um, its own like large-scale industrialization and similar policies in the decolonizing world, like, say, Africa and Southeast Asia. Um, there's now a lot more stuff that's out there. American exports are no longer dominating markets in the same way. So gold is starting to flow out of American markets a lot more than previously. This put a lot of strain on the integrity of the Bretton Woods system and was threatening the value of the dollar. So by 1971, it seemed that everything was looking pretty unstable for the United States on the Bretton Woods end. And it also has to be pointed out that when it came to policy knowledge, Richard Nixon and his inner circle had a somewhat rudimentary grasp of how economics worked. Um, Henry Kissinger later on as the oil shocks kick in um, would be, would famously note that this was something that was well outside of his wheelhouse and it, all of his considerations for how he resolves the oil shocks later on are driven by geopolitical concerns more than necessarily because of his understanding of the economics. Um, So, and, This was also like the same Richard Nixon who would use price controls as a way to help shore up his reelection campaign than necessarily as an anti-inflationary tool, though it was also partially that. Um, So that is some important context as well um, as to why Nixon and his people decided the best thing to do was in 1971 to end the convertibility of dollars to gold, which was referred to at the time as closing the gold window. Um, What this did for the monetary environment was it untethered the value not just of the dollar but pretty much of every currency of every major industrialized power where previously Bretton Woods had not just you know the fixed gold exchange rate but also fixed exchange rate between different currencies so like say between the Italian Lira and the US dollar the Deutschmark and the dollar the pound and so on um, you now entered a new environment where everything was moving on a set of floating exchange rates, which is what we have today. And it's something that's pretty normal for folks listening now. Um, so I, I can imagine for like most of the audience hearing about fixed exchange rates is, I may as well be talking about uh, what life on Mars looks like, but um, the, what this meant is monetary environments became more volatile. Um, what you now had was the value of currency, currency, compared to other currencies was based on perceived supply and demand as opposed to negotiated rates. So you could get more fluctuations. You could get some genuine currency speculation that absolutely fueled the instability of these markets and all kinds of other similar developments that just make life more complicated for everybody involved in finance and international trade. Um, There we go. Yeah. Server just got back. Um, So, this, but, and it's understandable why this is where a lot of scholars say, and this is the beginning of the neoliberal revolution, because it. Um, one expression that I encountered in the literature was it uh, freed uh, the economy from the shackles of gold. Um, and this is partially true, that now finance was no longer constrained by the limitations of gold stocks and by the impact of the price of gold on the value of money. And it also did create new volatility and new realms for speculation and other, um, I guess you could say, exotic financial activities. But just because you have those more volatile conditions doesn't mean that you are able to then create entirely new markets out of that at scale. That takes resources, that takes something else. So let's talk
1: about 1973.
0: And outline the main events of the oil shock. So, leading up to 1973, you had growing conflict between the oil exporting uh, powers of the global south, specifically the members of the Organization for Petroleum Exporting Countries, um, which included but were not limited to countries like Saudi Arabia, Iran, Indonesia, uh, Libya, Algeria. venezuela and several others um who all came together beginning in 1963 in a bid to get more control over their oil exports and particularly to claw back more money from the major oil companies that they were doing business with specifically the oil oligopoly referred to as the seven sisters which was a collection of five uh american uh oil uh super majors who were all you could say, like the children of Rockefeller's Standard Oil after that was broken up in the early 1900s, um, Royal Dutch Shell, and British Petroleum. Um, between them, these seven com- uh, companies controlled something like 90% of global international oil production and refining capacity um, through things like concessionary agreements, um, control of facilities, and other similar measures. Um They, because of this, at least at the time when they set these different concessionary deals with the members of OPEC. And when I'm talking concessionary deals, I'm talking like a degree of extraterritoriality that was granted to um, property owned by these companies, right to exploit any mineral resources that were found within the area, whether or not they knew of those resources at the time of establishing the concessions, and all kinds of other stuff that really actually, when you think about it sounds a lot like very colonial arrangements that were reached during the 19th century or like say in the Chinese treaty ports after the opium wars and all kinds of other similar kinds of systems. Um, So it's understandable that these different governments weren't terribly happy with this arrangement. Um, You already had Mossadegh Um, in Iran in 1954, attempt to nationalize oil, and this ended with a CIA-backed coup uh, against his government and the rise of the Shah. So there was already tension around this. Um, And things started heating up beginning in 1971 with the Tehran Agreement, which was the first time when OPEC was able to collectively force an increase in the price of oil and to set new terms. And this began something of a price war leading up to 1973. In fact, as early as March of 1973, a good seven months before the oil shocks, you had the... A governing board of the Bank of Scotland, along with many other similar authorities at the time, already saying we are in the midst of the opening stages of a global energy crisis because, from their perspective, they were like the oil—the price of oil had not moved an inch from 1945 to 1971, and now they're watching oil get ratcheted up pretty consistently on a like week by week basis, and are going, "Well, what are we supposed to do with this?" Leading up to the oil shocks, so finally, what? really sets it all off was the October War, which is also referred to as the Yom Kippur War, um, the 1973 round of the Arab-Israeli conflict, where Egyptian military forces under um, Anwar Sadat and uh, uh, Syrian troops, along with uh, Jordanian forces, And with support from other powers within the Middle East, launched an invasion of territories that had been lost to Israel during the Six-Day War of 1967, which was the Sinai Peninsula, the Golan Heights, and portions of the West Bank. Um, The invading Arab forces... Gained significantly more ground than their Israeli counterparts had expected, especially because they waited for the major Jewish holiday of Yom Kippur to launch their offensive. So based on the not incorrect assumption that many of the predominantly uh, Jewish Israeli troops would be at Temple and not on the front lines. Um The circumstances were sufficiently bad that there are documents that were since declassified that showed that Israel even armed their small unofficial uh, nuclear arsenal in expectation that things might get that bad and demanded immediate aid from the United States. And after a lot of backdoor pressure, the United States sent relief supplies And this is one of those for want of a nail moments that come up so much in history that originally Nixon and his people had planned to send the transport planes in the dead of night so they hopefully could land everything quietly in Tel Aviv, get all the supplies off, and nobody would be the wiser to the United States being actively involved in the conflict, especially because at the time American foreign policy was much more to try to play a balancing act between the two. Um, this did not happen. Wind conditions did not allow for the transport planes to take off until dawn from the Azores in Portugal. So instead of slipping in in the dead of night, they're landing in broad daylight for everyone to see. Um, The Israelis managed to successfully counterattack. And it also just so happened that around the same time, OPEC's members were meeting with representatives of the Seven Sisters in Vienna to again discuss the rate of... That they were being charged for extracting their oil and having to sell it to the seven sisters all of this sort of creates a perfect storm that leads to uh, the oil embargo shortly after the conflict comes to an end on the battlefield beginning with saudi arabia and others first cutting back production and then declaring total embargoes against the united states the netherlands and japan as punishment for the perceived support of those powers for Israel. And then just a continued ratcheting up of the production cuts over the course of the next several months. This was also something that was informed by their own recent history as there was an attempt by OPEC to do a similar oil embargo in 1967. Part of why it didn't work then was because American oil production was significantly more expansive in 1967 than it was in 1973. It was also because the 67 embargo was Just an embargo, and it did not come with the production cuts. The production cuts, when combined with the embargo, put significant pressure on global oil market supply. So it wasn't just that Middle Eastern and other OPEC suppliers were not selling to specific powers. It was also that the size of the market itself had significantly shrunk. And that gets us a quadrupling of the price of oil almost overnight.
1: We see a massive increase in prices and therefore a massive increase of revenues for oil-producing countries. What measures are taken in the immediate aftermath of the oil shock?
0: In the immediate term for oil importers outside of OPEC, this meant the price of oil had increased dramatically. And particularly because the energy mix of the global economy at this time was even more oil dependent than it is now, which is quite something to think about, but it is true. Um, This meant the price of everything else was directly impacted through what's called pass-through inflation. So that meant everything was more expensive and a lot more money was having to go to pay for oil. Um, For the oil... Exporters, particularly for the members of OPEC, but also this gets people like, uh, gets powers like Mexico to start getting in on the exporting game for the first time in decades. Um, This meant a huge new windfall of money was coming in. In fact, economists in particularly Saudi Arabia and the other Persian Gulf powers were concerned that if they spent too much of this money at home, it would lead to hyperinflation. And by this point, most of them had different plans and policies. They had been pursuing to some extent to industrialize their own economies and decrease their dependence on having to basically run their economies around oil. So there was already a desire to do this. The solution that was reached, and this begins with... What's referred to as the shuttle diplomacy by Henry Kissinger, where he basically proceeded to live out of an airplane for a few weeks, um, flying between all the different powers to reach an accommodation that they would begin that the saudis particularly would begin purchasing american treasury securities at um a discounted rate um and would get preferential access to those markets in exchange for continuing to sell oil in dollars and also pressure other OPEC members to do the same um, This now meant they had lots of dollars to play with, also lots of pounds sterling and other money, and they didn't want to spend this money at home. So what do they do? They take it all and they begin parking it in overseas banks because that is a way that you can get money and return on investment on what it is you've just gotten a huge windfall from without overheating your economy at home. Um, And just within the world of like. Broadly, this is somewhere in the neighborhood of three hundred billion dollars, would be moved in this way throughout the oil shock period in nominal value in that time, a figure that would be significantly more um, today and somewhere in the neighborhood of 140 billion or so would go just into like short term financial markets, things like the euro dollar market and other positions that would get very quick return on investment and uh, would also have sort of a guaranteed return on investment.
1: So let's talk about this
0: euro dollar market. Could you define it for our listeners? Sure. So the euro dollar market was one of those things that developed in the fringes of the Bretton Woods system, where officially you had these fixed exchange rates and the gold window and everything else. Um, But unofficially, dollars were still good for everything, sort of like Spanish doubloons back in the 16th century. Just because you're not Spanish doesn't mean you're not going to take a gold doubloon in exchange for goods and services, because it's still a gold doubloon. Um, So... What was happening with the euro dollar market was you had these lending positions that were developing first within London, but then also spreading to other places like Switzerland um, and banks within Germany where you could make deposits in dollars and in exchange for local currency and you could do this either as like say an american business that's wanting to invest in like say british or french concerns or what have you or if you were like say a british or a french company that's wanting to do business with their american counterparts um and this creates this sort this big um Economy of its own that is really one of the first like shadow banking systems to emerge in the post World War II period. It was mostly unregulated because it wasn't really like, you know, there wasn't a Euro dollar exchange somewhere that you could have your regulators go in and make sure everything's up to snuff. It was more just a lot of networks and uh, people who knew each other and all did business within the same places. Um, london for example being a hot spot for this market meant a lot of banks that wanted to do international business would open subsidiary offices there and do businesses out of those offices um and it was much more hey let's like have a drink over lunch and talk about um like setting up some loans than it was we're going down to the market to bid openly in the exchange for these different euro dollar contracts kind of arrangement um so it wasn't Illegal, but it wasn't something that was strictly speaking, you know, sanctioned either. And it sort of became accepted by financial regulators because it was a useful source of liquidity and nobody really could agree on what to do with it. Like British finance absolutely loved it because it was a great way to bring finance back into the United Kingdom. Um, Folks in like, say the federal reserve were a bit more leery of it because they saw it as worrying for the stability of the dollar. Um, And this all foreshadows later on why international regulators failed to really pull it together and, and, collectively act during the petrodollar crisis um and it also plays a critical role in making that crisis what it is um financially anyway
1: i was about to ask about the role of international regulators i think about the imf for instance what were they doing Um, Did they try to put some kind of mechanism in place? How did they react to the oil shock?
0: Well, they do their best, and one of the best examples of this is the IMF oil facility, which begins in 1974, and then the OECD sets up a similar fund beginning in 1975. Um, The Bank for International Settlements also gets involved by providing similar kind of backstop loans to these other loans that have been established but the scope of all of these different funds is not even within the same order of magnitude as the flow of capital that's coming through. Um, and part of why they're setting this up is because the other side of what's happening with all this money is it's not just being parked in banks. It's also being loaned out to oil importers so that they can pay for more expensive oil and more expensive, everything else. Um, so, the goal of these different funds was to try to mitigate this somewhat but the scale was never really sufficient and also just like just from listing off those dates they were a bit slow to the game of getting in like by mid-1974 you already had like the first major flow of capital had entered private sector finance um and was flooding into euro dollar markets um the and this would continue throughout the entire period up until 1970 up until 1980 so it really was partly because the scope and scale was simply beyond what they were able to invest in and prepare for they also on a theoretical level were assuming that if there was going to be another major shock it would be something like the 1968 gold crisis where speculation in international financial markets were what caused the problem and not a genuine shift in one of the core components of the material economy Um, so they sort of zigged when they should have zagged Um, For reasons that made sense at the time, but unfortunately, that's how it was. But I think the most important thing, and this is uh, in alignment with what's out there with other research generally around this period, is the different national governments involved all had diverging priorities. By this point, you're no longer in a situation where the United States is the unquestioned economic. Economic hegemon of the capitalist West, and you have a lot of reindustrializing and reindustrialized powers that are now wanting to set policies that are more favorable to them. So you see things like, for example, the British putting on the brakes for a larger um, oil facility because they're actually quite okay with all this money flowing in because this is again just as the Sterling crisis and all these other things are about to heat up. So something that's going to give a shot in the arm to their financial system is great. Um, Um, France and Germany are both pursuing their own ends, Germany particularly because their um, industries were more coal dependent, and so they were a bit more insulated from the oil shocks and were looking to continue their export-led growth, um, and all kinds of other similar sort of conflicts that were not helped by that. There's some evidence that the United States was saying one thing to all of these, their Supposed allies while actively pursuing a completely different policy of negotiating behind closed doors um, with Saudi Arabia and the other Gulf powers um, and using them as leverage against the rest of OPEC. so it really is just a total mess of not only is like there no coordination, it's that the critical players are all working at cross-purposes and the different organizations that are there, Like you can kind of get this feeling from reading the BIS documents of they're like, well, we really would like to do more, but this is the best we can do with what we've got. Let's talk about banks
1: and see what they were doing with the money they were able to collect on the euro-dollar market. Your book talks extensively about the syndicated loans, and I was wondering if you could explain how they worked.
0: So a syndicated loan is a special kind of loan that happens when a group of banks get together to extend credit to a specific economic concern. It could be a government, it could be a corporation. Um, They're not new by this period. Like the United States built, A lot of the big railroads uh, networks of the 1800s using syndication. Um, The Germans absolutely were using syndicated lending in like the 19 teens, thing like most famously with like say the Berlin to Baghdad Railway um, and all kinds of other similar projects. What's different about these syndications is so far. And the way syndication works is you'll have like a lead bank, which is the one that has like the staffing and expertise to handle these kind of big, complex um, financial packages and the different participating banks will sign up and they'll contribute capital and they'll pay small fees to the lead bank to handle all the business. What's different is up until this point, syndications where they existed mostly were confined to their specific markets. So like, say, if you had a German syndicated loan, it was just going to be German banks and probably just for a German business concern. Um, This is now you do have the first international syndications begin in 1968. Um and uh, these start getting experimented with a little bit in the late 60s but it's the oil shocks that really make them extremely popular because now you have a combination of uh, national governments major municipalities um national uh, corporations in terms of you know ones that are directly or partially state-owned that are now asking for significantly more capital than they previously have they don't have enough from local sources and you have these banks particularly in new york and london where a lot of this petrocapital capital money is winding up who have lots of capital That they have an expect that their depositors, particularly from the Persian Gulf, are expecting a return on investment from. So they do what banks do when you have capital and demands for return on investment. They start loaning it out and they start building these new international syndications. And what's really significant about these syndications is not just that they're international, which is somewhat new in this period, though, not totally new to the oil shock. It's that they start bringing in mid-level regional and local banks into the situation. Previously, when you were doing international finance, this was very specialized very specific banks did this now you had people like the bank of scotland who mostly focused on scottish industry for most of their history lending money to brazilian power companies and to um like iranian um industrial projects and all kinds of other stuff that they previously never really got involved in and This makes finance a lot more globalized in a big way of now a lot of banks that previously didn't have much international exposure are now bound up in international markets in a big way.
1: Let's talk about financial practices. Your book highlights that the amount of swap contracts and futures, such as the interest rate futures,
0: increases enormously during these years why and how so interest rate futures are again building on something that already existed um but we're still something fairly new in this time Um, a futures contract um, for those who aren't familiar is a contract where you agree to pay a certain price for a given good or service at a future date and this started like in places like say the United States around agricultural commodities um, because like say you are a pig farmer and you bring your hogs into market a day after somebody else just brings a whole bunch in the price of your pigs is going to be a lot lower and that's going to you know creates a lot of risk and a lot of problems for you so this gives like starting in like say Chicago they start reaching these agreements called futures contracts where farmers would make an agreement well in advance with a commodities dealer that they would sell their hogs to this particular person at this particular price on this particular date and that helps stabilize everything Um, an interest rate future is a little bit different because this is applying the same logic to financial products as opposed to physical commodities they were spun off of currency futures which developed because of the nixon shock and the end of Bretton woods so that where you had new instability within the markets incidentally that was proposed by one milton friedman um and he lobbied specifically with the treasury the secretary of the treasury to legalize those in the united states in the first place and they became the model for the interest rate future which was an agreement to uh, get a loan at a specific interest rate at a certain point in time in the future. Um, this was Increasingly important in the period of the oil shock and they don't really develop until after the oil shocks really kick off because interest rates were becoming increasingly volatile throughout markets part of this was because of central bank monetary policies but also because the markets just generally were a lot more volatile so rates were going up and rates were being charged at different levels so you needed guarantees and they included things like ratcheting rates so that if things went up you could then just sort of bring it back down and all kinds of other different measures to try to stabilize things a bit um and and yeah if this stuff is sounding a bit woolly like some of this really high finance derivative stuff is a bit of a mess um and this is definitely the stuff that took the longest for me just to wrap my brain around how it works generally um what about swap contracts Um, So swap contracts are also something that comes out of this same period, and they really rise into prominence because of the euro dollar market and the increasing demands for liquidity, uh, like liquid currency, and the means to make different loans and contracts possible. Um, What a swap contract is, is it's basically an agreement to... uh, swap as the name implies one financial product for another specifically um as it first starts in the case of currency swaps the way it worked was uh, that I would say I'm a British bank who wants to do business in the United States. I would take out a loan in pounds because I can get that at a better rate than I can at dollars. I would then send somebody across the street to a representative of an American bank. They would take out a similar sized loan in U.S. dollars. And then we would basically pay each other for each other's loans and swap the loans. Um, And this also... Like the euro dollar market is happening in what's referred to as a dark market. This isn't happening in big open exchanges. This is not something that's regulated. It's just a practice that's emerging um, and becomes increasingly regulated between different banks. Um, and really, we don't actually even get the first numbers on how big this market is until 1980 and the first like international markets until 1985. And some of these numbers are show. Like, sort of, really jaw dropping increases in volume of the size of this market, um, which some have argued suggests that this is because the contracts were becoming rapidly increasingly uh, popular but i think what's more likely especially because the documentation during this period was very inconsistent um like these loans were referred to as things like back to back loans or interbank loans or all kinds of other different terminology like within the bank of england's own documents they're not referred to as the same way throughout this period um And often these kind of back to back loans were things that weren't really like recorded in the balance sheets at the first in the first place, because, you know, you're swapping the loans. Nothing's really changing that much so that you just have to make a note of the transaction somewhere. And how these things were archived wasn't even necessarily consistent. So it not only is it an unregulated dark market, even the banks aren't really being consistent about how they're recording and keeping track of this stuff. So even though some have argued like the rapid increase of the size is like, well, suddenly it became really popular in the eighties might, be overstating the case a bit, I think what might be more accurate to say is the rapid increase of known swap contracts was because they were becoming increasingly regularized and regulated and normalized. Um, And I suspect that the scale of their use was probably quite significant simply because of how big the Eurodollar market became in this period, how much pressure there clearly was on banks to meet all these obligations, and stuff from their own internal documents saying, well, we're under a lot of pressure to be able to meet these contracts and make all this work, so we need to get this money somehow.
1: Let's move on to 1979
0: and talk about the second oil shock. So the second oil shock which I distinguish in my book from the oil embargo is much more of a genuine shock. Whereas the the oil embargo of 1973 was due to escalating tensions that if you were in the industry, you knew this was coming that at some point there was going to be a confrontation between OPEC and the Seven Sisters. It was just a question of when. The second oil shock was much more surprising to anyone who was like, say, not living in in Iran at the time. And this was because to all outside observers, Iran was an industrializing, diversified economy with a stable political system. They had successfully suppressed and connections lost. There it is. Um, Hey, connections back. Um, They had successfully suppressed um, significant dissident movements. Um, For example, the Ayatollah Khomeini had been exiled for years by this point. Um, So... To all outside observers, Iran was an extremely safe bet. They were getting lots of money coming in. They were spending lots of money, and not just on, like, say, industrialization and economic projects, but also on really, really high end weapon systems, like cutting edge uh, material from the United States. Um, there was, like, one document in the Bank of England where they discussed swapping oil directly for missiles um, from British contractors instead of bothering with the whole selling it and buying stuff. Um, uh, that There was also like one diplomatic cable describing that they'd bought like a significant quantity of napalm warheads from the U.S., like all kinds of stuff. Um, so Iran, as far as everyone can tell, is doing fine. But if you're actually in Iran, all of this spending sort of overshadowed that the wealth divide between the people who were close to the shah and different industries that were sponsored by the government was like increase their wealth was increasing everybody else was being left behind um the sort of rapid industrialization he was pushing was causing significant social upheaval within the more predominantly rural populations um iran's Uh, agricultural exports and agricultural economy suffered and they actually shifted to ceasing to be a net exporter during this period of food. Um, There's all kinds of things at home that, you know, for folks who remember things like the history of the French revolution, this is all starting to sound a little familiar. Um, And then in 1978, this all explodes in the Iranian revolution where uh, the, where you start seeing mass protests in the street. Um, the secret police failed to contain them. So the Shah makes the fatal mistake of sending out the army, which was largely conscript-based and not interested in shooting their neighbors. Um, shortly after, the oil workers go on strike, and that's it. Um, the Iranian government fell, and the, one of the big producers within OPEC is now out of global markets. Um, this was then immediately followed by action by the United States, um, such as like freezing Iranian assets in a bid to sort of punish the new revolutionary government and get a handle on things. And this is also when you have things like the hostage crisis and all kinds of other stuff going on. Um, And uh, what this does is it doubles the price of oil again. And previous and as this begins, you see this in OAPEC documents, the Organization of Arab Petroleum Exporting Countries, as opposed to OPEC, um, where at first they're seeing this happening and they're going, "Okay, well, it's going to be another windfall. We've seen this story before. It's going to be great. But by 1980, they've concluded that the new wave of inflation that's come with it, as well as the fact that most oil importers by this point are heavily in debt, just to keep up with the cost of the original oil shock. So what this does is instead of providing new windfall like oh uh, own documents say that they only received something like 60 percent of real value versus the nominal value of the new windfall that this is not really making the money they thought it would and it has uh, like beggared all of their clients and all of their customers um, this also for the world of finance causes huge immediate shocks both in terms of that opec Uh, powers, particularly the ones in the Persian Gulf, stop putting their money in overseas banks because they now see they're not getting the same windfall money. So instead of being afraid of hyperinflation at home, they're making sure they actually have enough money to pay for everything. Um, You have examples like Kuwait, who start implementing currency controls to prevent the outflow of hard currency, which leads to a lot of money being invested in speculative markets back home, like the Sukal Monarch. Um, The the bank uh the banks that were involved with iran directly suffer negative consequences from the asset freeze um the bank of Scotland, for example had something like 200 million pounds on the line um and they were far from the biggest lender to the iranian government um this basically froze up billions of dollars just as markets needed liquidity um that just was no longer there and You also see this in, like, say, BIS documents, where the flows of petrodollar investment rapidly drop off in this period. They hit close to zero by 1981, and by 1982, um, the only figures that are recorded are uh, long-term positions being liquidated and capital being pulled back to the region. And part of why this is happening is not just because of the economic instability, but because the political story is still unfolding. Um, in late 1980, um, Saddam Hussein, who had recently become the president of Iraq, um, both to take advantage of Iran's perceived weakness, because there's a lot of bad blood between these two countries that goes back quite a ways um, by this point in time, and also because of widespread fears throughout the region of a growing Islamic revolution against these different predominantly secular republics and monarchies who have been heavily criticized by muslim clerics for years that and this culminated in like about the same time as the iranian revolution the grand mosque in mecca was taken over by uh, muslim militants there was a lot of confusion as to who was behind it with a lot blaming iran at the time Um, so saddam hussein decides both to take advantage of iran's perceived weakness and to stop the spread of revolution he launches an invasion of iran and this turns the Persian Gulf, which is a major channel for the movement of oil into a war zone. Um, it further constricts oil production throughout the region. And also most importantly, the Persian Gulf powers start instead of having money to send overseas, start extending interest free loans to the Iraqi government to fund their war. So not only are they liquidating and pulling back on their financial positions, but free money they had is now going to fight a war instead of to prop up the global financial system. And this is also happening while the Volcker shock is making lending even more expensive. So it's just sort of a perfect storm of it's harder to lend, harder to move money. And there's a lot less of that money in the first place.
1: Exactly. And I just wanted to ask you about the Volcker shock. How do these two phenomena
0: combine Well, it comes at really the worst possible time for oil importers because already they're having to previously pay interest on the loans they've taken out. And there is to an extent, and you see this particularly in like, say, Mexico, before the 1979 oil shock, there's already the beginning of the extension of rollover credit, which is basically banks saying, we're going to give you a little bit of money to help tide you over while you get your finances in order to pay for your existing loans and everything will be fine. When the Volcker shock significantly increases interest rates by several Base points at a time like I mean we're talking about interest rate increases now and those are having a significant negative impact on the economy the rate increases of the Volcker shock were significantly higher than this like we're getting up to like 15 20 percent rates it was absolutely eye-watering levels of interest for anyone who's wanting to take out money so just as the money is not flowing out of the Middle East Uh, particularly, um, because again, they're the largest source of this liquid petrodollar um, reinvestment in in this period. It's also way more expensive to borrow. And for people who are now looking at oil doubling on top of quadrupling from six years previously, um, this is money they don't have. money they have to borrow from somebody and now it is way more expensive to borrow that money in 1979 1980 and 1981 than it was in 73 74 75 so it just really isn't possible to get through the previous oil shock as you did basically on like a cushion of credit because that cushion's not there anymore um, and this is what leads us to the 1982 global debt crisis and all these different countries defaulting on their loans because now they just can't afford it. Dr. Smith, thank you so much.
1: It was great to talk about your book, The Real Oil Shock," and to connect all the bits and pieces of the 70s. I don't want to take too much of your time. Before we go, I just wanted to ask you, what is your next project? What are you working on at the moment?
0: Right now, I am working on some more contemporary research around how the declining cost of renewable energy will be impacting the way that finance and economics works. Um, and that's currently in its beginning stages, though the initial results look very exciting. Um in my opinion, that actually may be the bigger thing that renewables do beyond averting catastrophic climate change. Um, So, uh, you know, watch this space for wherever that comes out. Um, I'm also going to be uh, launching a narrative history podcast in August uh, called A History of Capitalism that just sort of gives a nice broad overview of things beginning from, like, say, the late Middle Ages up to well, all the it is we just went over um, and, you know, see how that goes. And yeah, you know, those are just sort of the big things I've got in the works. Also looking a little bit at 1982, a bit more um, and uh, this concept called a uh, systemic cost reduction, which is, you know, when you get something that makes the cost of everything within a particular field cheaper to do like, you know, stuff like the cotton gin um, or Um, the declining cost of data transmission and storage on the internet, stuff like that. So uh, yeah, that's pretty much all I've got coming up.
1: I'm looking forward to listening to your podcast on the history of capitalism. Thank you so much, Dr. Smith.
0: Thank you for having me on.